Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? You okay? Are you sure? If you're in the UK, no doubt it's quite cold. If you're up north, yeah, it's even colder. This week the airports have been shut down. It's a bit of snow, but put a jumper on. Put a jumper on. Don't get in the car if it's if it's icy. Just just you'll get there in your own time. Just do that. Stick your headphones in. Your headphones. Your headphones in, <laughs> and listen to a podcast. There's many, many, many fantastic podcasts out there. And we're really thankful that you choose us to listen to. You have a choice. You have a choice. Of course, we all have choices. But you listen to the Two Shot Podcast, and we're very grateful. And we've got a little treat for you this week. Now, you remember, if you're one of those people, and there's many of them, I've heard, that have listened to all 73 episodes, 73 episodes, can you believe it, um, of the podcast, and we always get great reaction, and we always try and interact with all the listening community as much as we can. We've had so many emails at the moment, it's going a bit nuts. Um, and we always try and get on the Twitter and the Instagram and the Facebook to sort of respond to you because that's what it's all. It's a give and take situation, you know. We like to respond and let you know. You, you let us know what you like, uh, and that's fantastic. And we always get great reactions. But the reaction to Steve Everts' episode, people were asking for a part two, and... Sometimes if people ask for a part two, uh, it's great and I'm really flattered that they enjoyed it, but maybe I, I'm i not that skilled enough at the moment. I, I don't really know where to go with a part two with certain people because I don't really talk about jobs, you know that, with actors. I don't want things to get self-indulgent or self-serving in any way. I want it. I want the stories that certainly actors talk about to connect with anybody because we've got loads of listeners who have nothing to do uh with the arts in any way but with musicians it's kind of a bit different because i'm talking to people who it's not my world or an artist or a poet or a a writer it's nothing to do so i'm as fascinated as 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 you are and i want the stories to unfold as as i'm finding them out but there was something in me when people were asking about a part two with Steve, that there was more to unravel. And I'm very, very pleased to tell you that I was right. It's... I don't want to waste my bets. I don't want to say it. I'm going to say it. I think it could possibly be even better than his first part. Now, if you haven't listened to part one, stop what you're doing right now. Put the hoover down. Get off the treadmill. We don't want any accidents. Scroll through the back catalogue. Go to... Keep scrolling. I think it's episode th- 31, I think. You'll find it. Steve Everts. Take your time now. Take an hour and 20? I'm not sure. Uh, over an hour. Listen to that first. Because with this, we start off pretty much where we left off. I don't think Steve 
kind of remembered where we stopped. But I did, I did. Um, and just before we pick back up, uh, we talk about uh, a recent health scare that Steve had that made him kind of reevaluate a few things in his life. And then we get back on to where we left off. And my God, it goes. It goes all around. It's um, it's it's quite brilliant. And it f- well, it flew by when we were recording. And speaking of recording, sometimes it's quite hard uh, to find uh, a space or a studio because we were in Manchester in our usual place. The lovely people at Ziffer Black and End Street couldn't help us out this time. So... I dropped a text to past lovely guest, J.B. Barrington, and he suggested uh, the old Nags Head, which is an amazing old-school boozer in the centre of Manchester, and he sorted us out uh, with with Sean, the landlord, there, and we got a little flat, uh, a little flat, a little room above, it was like a flat, to be honest, uh, a little room, a little function room above the pub, and uh, we sat down, and we got going with Steve. So... Hold on to your hats. I've got more to say, but I think we should just get down to the episode, don't you? Okay, let's do this. This is episode 74 of the Two Shot Podcast. It's a part two, our first ever part two, with the fantastic, the one and only, Mr. Steve Everts. Enjoy. I'll see you at the end. No, I remember, funnily enough, I don't remember at the end of every podcast because we've done yeah. quite a lot, but I do remember where we stopped wow, at, good. On, on yours. Good, because I and, don't... and I want to go back to that, but first of all, how are you? You all right? I'm all right, Craig, yeah, and it's lovely to see you. It's lovely again. to see you, mate. Brilliant, and um, I'm flattered to be asked back, to be honest. It was inevitable, Steve. It was going to happen, you. surely. Um, it's been quite eventful since we last spoke. Yeah. And... Can you tell me, because I got, I was a bit worried about it at one point, oh, since we last met, because you sent me a, a text going, oh, I've got to do this. And what led you to going into hospital? Oh, um, What was the build-up of you? What, you mean recently? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, I was working on Gentleman Jack in, uh, I was filming in Halifax. So the hotel me in Leeds, and I drove over to Leeds the night before. <laughs> I checked into the hotel, got upstairs, got out the lift and collapsed. <clears throat> Passed out, came to in the corridor, got up, got to the room, collapsed again. Uh, got up, I had to be up at six in the morning for filming. Like, let me just stress, I hadn't had anything to drink yeah. or any drugs at all. Were you not worried at all at this point? Yeah, I was worried, but it was like work tomorrow. Bloody hell, mate. Worked. I mean, you, you come before the work. Well, not in my world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like missing work, especially as something over what I classed as self-inflicted. Anyway, I went to bed, um, went to sleep. I got up, I had to be on set at 6.30, and what it was was I had the car parked on me and I wanted my car outside the hotel at 6.15, so I could drive to the location. So when I finished, I could just drive home. That was the plan, <coughs> which I'd done on numerous occasions doing that film, that, that uh, series. I got up in the morning, 
I left the hotel room to go down to check out. I collapsed again in the corridor. So that's three times in the space that's of 24, less times. than 24 hours. I got up again. I walked further. I collapsed again. So that was five times. And then I got disorientated. So I couldn't find the lift. And I ended up going through this door to walk down the stairs. But it wasn't the guest stairs, if you like. This was like a concrete fire escape stairs. Yeah. I got halfway down there and I collapsed and I went down and I knew I wasn't getting up this time. I was completely disorientated, but I knew I had to get to work. I hadn't even got to the desk to check out at this point. Right. So you're all by yourself? I'm no all by one's... myself. I'm on this stairwell, this concrete stairwell. I don't know where... I know I'm still in the hotel and I know I'm going to be late for work. I needed help, but, you know, you can't ring the hotel. You get... You get a, an office in, in London saying, which Marriott Hotel do you want? Press yeah. this for that. Your car's very important. Somebody will be with you. All that bollocks. So the only thing I could think of doing was ringing a second AD on the job, Chris Marshall. And I rang him, and apparently I was babbling incoherently. But I managed to say to him, Chris, I'm going to be late for work. I've collapsed. I don't know where I am. I don't know how to get out of this place. Uh, send help. Anyway, he did. He rang the hotel and they sent someone out to look for me. And then, I don't know how long I was there on this stairwell, but I couldn't stand up. I couldn't breathe. And I was totally disorientated. And then I heard this voice, someone shouted me in the stairwell and it was one of the hotel employees who'd gone to look for me because I'd described to Chris where I was. Yeah. All I said was, I mean, some kind of fire escape, concrete stairwell, blah, blah, blah. So, anyway, this hotel employee, bless him, he got me, he helped me up, he got me to the lift, he took me down to a reception where they had an ambulance waiting for me. <clears throat> They'd done some tests <clears throat> and rushed me into hospital. So my car was at the hotel. I, I managed, after I got to hospital, this was early in the morning, this was like 7 a.m. Yeah. So I get rushed to St. James's Hospital in Leeds and they do all sorts of preliminary tests and then they bang me in a ward. And as soon as my agent's office opens, I ring them and I tell them what's up. I've run Chris Marshall, the AD, again. Uh, I've told him what's happened. So they had to reschedule a day's filming, which I was horrified at. The idea of missing work and being, it being my fault filled me with horror and I just thought, this is not good. Anyway, long story short, I was in St. James's Hospital for five days. I got diagnosed with pulmonary disease from... A disease from smoking, lack of breathing. Um, so I was there five days. My daughters came over, asked blah, blah, blah. They looked after me in hospital. They'd done loads of tests, x-rays, lungs, this, that, and the other. And I was on these, um, not, not defibrillators, well, I don't know what they're called now, to help you breathing and all that nonsense. So I've not had a cigarette since. I've not had a cigarette for nearly four months. That's brilliant. Because man. I figured that. They basically said to me, look... You're having trouble breathing because you're smoking. And I've been smoking since I was 15 and I smoked roll-ups and I, I only smoked like 10, 15 a day, but that was too much. And I had been very short of breath up to that point. So I decided when I was in hospital, five days after nicotine takes four or five days to get out of your system. So I figured when the five days was up was, I'd gone cold turkey, but my mind was occupied somewhere else because yeah. I was ill. So 
I've not touched one since I've had no vapes, no patches, no chewing gum, no tablets, no hypnosis, nothing. Did they advise you? <coughs> Did they say you, you really should stop? Well, they advised it, but what happened was my brain told my body. It was like, and the only way I think, if somebody had told me I'd give up smoking, I'd have laughed at them. And the point is, if I can do it, anyone can do it. But the thing is, what I've realised is, your brain has to say, that's enough. That is enough. Yeah. Because it was a yellow card. You know, I'm 60 this year, that was a yellow card. Yeah, that's a big warning, man. Yeah, it was. And it took that for my brain to go, that's it. If I'd have gone, I'm giving up smoking in a month, I'm giving up smoking in two weeks, I'm giving up in a week, five days, four days, three days, two days, one day, I've given up. Then I'd have been, it's been two hours since I've had a cig. Yeah. It's been three days since I've yeah. had a cig. I want a cig, I want a cig. And I wasn't like that. It was just like, right, you can't have that anymore. Right, okay, that's that. The brain's done that. And that's it. And also, you have to be the one to, to make that decision. You have to. Somebody it, else can't it, do it for it, you. No, it has to come from your brain. Your brain has to say, that is enough. And I still go in pubs where there's a lock-in and the ashtrays are out and people are smoking. And it... I'm not having one. And I'm not even there going, oh, I yeah. want one. I'm just... It's done. It's done. Yeah. I, I went home, I had nine packets of tobacco stashed that because I, I buy them in bulk. I gave them away. I threw all the ashtrays out. The only ashtray in my house is the one that's stuck on the ceiling. There's one on the ceiling with a fag in it that's been there for years. That's the only ashtray in my house now. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I have this cab driver who picks me up. Tom had sort of ringing direct. And he always let me smoke in his cab. And when he, he pulls up, Tom taxi, he's got a fag on the go. And he, he always goes, oh, shit, sorry, Steve. I know you don't. No, Tom, that's all right. Just because I don't smoke doesn't mean you don't have to. Yeah, it's your yeah. car, mate. I'm not, I'm not a born-again smoker. Do what you want, mate. But until your brain says no, then that's it. Because you look better. You do I look better. better. Not that, you, not that you looked awful, but you no. look different. Like under your eyes mm. and and actually in your eyes, you look you look. Well, that was a plastic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I got it done cheap by this guy who goes in the pub. <laughs> no, no, I feel better. I can walk further. My lungs capacity is brilliant. Only the other day, up to Allingworth Lake. I love the place. Two point two miles round it is. Nice brisk walk round. Fresh cod from Mr. Thomas's cod shop, straight from Whitby. Cup of tea, cracking. And have you changed anything else, like in, in yourself, like your well, diet or anything? Well, I'm or... eating more just because I'm I'm not smoking. Mm. But um, I've never been one for like microwave meals for one any and that nonsense anyway. So I think I'm eating the same. I just think I'm eating a bit more. I'm getting more exercise. I just feel better for it. Um, I just feel so much better uh, mentally and, and physically. Tell me about the disease again. What's it called? It's uh, COPD. It's pulmonary disease. And it's because there's like loads of hairs in your lung. It, it just gets blocked, basically. Mm. So they did sort of loads of scans on me while I was there. And then they found some nodules on my lungs. And then I had to go for a further intricate scan. <coughs> and basically, they just said, everything's fine. Nothing's suspicious. You're all right. So I think I've got another few years in me yet. <laughs> <laughs> but then, 
I went and I bought myself a brand new car for the first time in my life. Yeah. I bought a brand new car, treated myself. It was great. It was made up. I had it like three weeks and had a crash in it. Completely wrote the bastard off. What happened? I smashed into a, car, a stationary car at seven in the morning. <coughs> My foot slipped off the pedal. I went round this corner and just smashed up the, and it completely wrote it off. No. The police came. I was just sat in the car, mate, because I couldn't drive it. Yeah. It mashed in all the wing, flattened the tyre, the axle got broke, everything. So I thought, well, I might as well just wait here till the police come. And they come, but the woman whose car it was ran out of the house going, my car, but she wasn't in it. And this bloke <laughs> ran over. He went, are you all right, mate? And I went, yeah. He went, are, are you in shock? I went, well, no, just waiting for the police to come. Like, Anyway, the police come, breathalyzed me. I was fine. I knew it was. And uh, so my brand, brand new car got smashed up. So what's happening with that? Well, I've got another one now. Oh, good. It took me, like, they assessed it and the insurance paid the woman out and paid the car. <coughs> so I can got another. <laughs> but, I mean, all my life I've, I've drove shitty bangers and cars <laughs> and, and I've never had an accident. And I go and buy a new one. And, and I then totaled it. And then you have your first accident. Completely totaled it. So have you been having to go back into hospital for any checkups or anything? I've been today, actually. Oh, have yeah. you? Yeah. And everything all right? Mm. Yeah, they've been keeping... It's good, really, because they've been getting an MOT, like... Yeah. And, uh, like I say, they've done an inter- in-depth uh, magnetic scan, this, that and the other. And everything's fine, really. My body index, mass, weight, or whatever it is, is all good. Um, I'm eating all right. I'm exercising all right. I'm doing a lot of walking. Uh, I'm not smoking. Yeah, everything's OK. That's brilliant, mate. I'm yeah, really pleased yeah. for you. Sometimes it, you know, as you say, it takes those yellow cards to to stop or have a little bit of change of lifestyle. Yeah, it's the only way because I actually enjoyed smoking. I, I, I loved, I never smoked outside anyway, me. When I used to go to the pub, I could be in a pub for three hours and I wouldn't have a cigarette unless it was in the pub. Yeah. I wouldn't go outside and just have a quick blast and come in. So... I could go three or four hours without a cigarette anyway. Because you were quite well known for smoking in bathrooms of hotels as well, weren't you? Yeah, I always do that. It's just, <laughs> I, again, it's like, well, someone's paying for the room. I'm six floors up. I do fucking, I'm not running down all them flights of stairs to go outside. Fuck off. <laughs> I've, I've at least a, a floor for smokers. I hate the way smokers are discriminated against. Not only are they discriminated against, you're actively encouraged to discriminate against them. It's the only group in society that you can laugh and point at. They even put a little shelter outside for us to huddle in. I'm saying us, I'm not one anymore. Not anymore. But I still think there should be smoking pubs and non-smoking pubs. And put a green plaque outside a smoking pub. And hire staff that smoke. And if you're going to have a pub with meals in, no smoking pub. What is wrong with that? And then the people who don't smoke, they go in a non-smoking pub. And if you're just smoking, you go to a non-smoking pub, respect that by the same rule. If you want to smoke, go in a smoker's pub. And if, if you're a non-smoking, you go to a smoker's pub, expect somebody to be smoking. Well, I was saying the other day about trains. You know trains. How, how you've got the quiet carriage? <laughs> yeah. I respect that. If, if I want to, I'll, I'll bugger off, I'll go to the next one. But if I sat down on a busy train and someone next to me is having some horrible, dirty, smelly food, Ugh. and I've got to sit there... right. Go, let's have an eating carriage. Yeah, yeah. So all the people who want to eat, <laughs> why not? they go in the eating carriage. Yeah, they don't annoy not? anybody because they're all eating, so they, they cancel each other out. Yeah. 
I mean, I always go in, in the quiet carriage and I always turn my phone off because that's why I'm in the car quiet carriage. And there's always somebody, always somebody who thinks that, you know, it doesn't apply to them. Yeah. And, it just, and it's always me who says, and I always do it politely, excuse me, this is the quiet coach. And it's like, Ugh. but you know, fuck it's the quiet call. coach. Go outside and yeah. take the phone call. Nothing wrong with I that. I have one. my phone on silent in my pocket, vibrate. If somebody rings me, I can feel it vibrate. Mm. I look at it. If it's a call that I need to take, I don't answer it there. I go straight into the vestibule. Yeah. And then I ring them back if it stops or I answer it. It's dead easy. And it winds me up when I'm in the quiet coach and some bastard's got his phone pinging away and, and talking shit. Yeah, I'm on the train. Yeah, I'm going to lose this thing. Yeah, fuck off, we know. And then, but when I go in a normal carriage, if everyone's prattling away, it don't bother me, no, obviously. No, Because I go in the quiet coach, because I just want a piece of bit of quiet. And we all need that at times. Yeah. Sometimes you can't, the only time you can get a bit of peace and quiet is on the bloody train. I know. <laughs> uh, so I remember anyway, yeah. where we left off, right? Where did we leave off? Then? We left off. <clears throat> you'd just been offered... The Ken Loach film. Oh, so let's. What we should do. A lot of space before that. So we should. We should just. We should rewind, really, mm, shouldn't we? Yeah. So let's say, let's go back at roughly a year because your your long term memory is very good. Mm. So the leading up to that. Well, leading up to that, from. I mean, I could go back to. When I got my equity card, mm. right, and then I started doing extra work. Now, this was in, in the early 90s. This was after the stabbing and all that. When I got the, Which everybody knows very well by now. Yeah, so. the stabbing was a thing, but that's that. So anyway, yeah, when I got the equity card, and then I'd done some extra work, and I knew that wasn't the way forward, and I was trying to get an agent, but nobody knew me, and I had no real CV. So the thing what I did then was I read up on actors' cooperatives. Yeah. And I decided to get with one of them. Now, to do that, they had to see you working in something. So I needed to be working. But I wasn't known, so I couldn't get jobs, blah, blah, blah. Proper Cats 22. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Cats 22. I decided to stop doing extra work, even though I had no money. Um, so that was a hard decision, but I knew I had to do that. I knocked about a lot at the Actors Centre, where the notice board was invaluable to me. I'd done some great little films student films or weird films that I cut my teeth on. And just getting that experience, yeah. Getting that experience and auditioning for theatre companies as well. I mean, there was one on that that notice board in, in the Actors Centre. was a, a building near Granada TV. It was about six floors high. There was a thing, and they were looking to make this film, a little independent film, probably a half hour long. And they were looking for someone to play a hitman psychopath. And the, the brief was you know, about six foot well built. And I thought, why? And and I rang it, and Paul Murphy, a director, he does, uh, he's, I've worked with him since, on Death in Paradise, he's directed that, Casual Tear, Doctor Who. He's, I've not worked on Doctor Who, but he's a well-renowned director. He was an actor then, he was unknown. Anyway, I rang this thing up and spoke to the director of it. It wasn't Paul Murphy, it was this guy, can't remember his name. And I said, yeah, it's Steve Everts. Yeah, he said, uh, the hitman thing. I said, yeah. He said, the big lad said, yeah, I am. 
Uh, come and meet me, because I was racing something at the Actors Centre. I said, come and meet me, and blah, blah, blah. So he did, and when he turned up, the woman, Joe, was on reception. He buzzed up. I asked me, I'm here to meet Steve Evers. I came down the stairs and opened the door, and I went, yeah, can you help me, mate? And he went, I'm here to see Steve Evers. I went, oh, he's upstairs. So this bloke come in. So I slammed the door, grabbed him by the fucking scruff of the neck, <laughs> threw him against the wall. I said, give me your fucking wallet and your car keys, you fucker, he shit himself. <laughs> and then I went, I'm only kidding, mate. I'm Steve Everts. Anyone can be a fucking psycho. And he went, yeah, and I got the job. <laughs> that is the best I got the job. story I've ever heard. Honest. That is brilliant. And, and Paul Murphy was on that as an actor. <clears throat> and I've since worked with him in Casual, which he's directed, and Death in Paradise, which he's directed. <laughs> but that was how I got one job. And then I was doing, with this girl called Caroline Woodruff, we did a play at the Actors' Centre called Elsie and Norm's Macbeth, mm. which was about a couple doing Shakespeare in the living room for the neighbours, which was a great play. And we got in touch with casting directors at Granada, at BBC, at some directors... To come uh, in and come to see To come it. in and yeah. see us. And we did it free, and Caroline Woodruff, bless her, she paid for the rights to the play because I had no money. We did Elsie and Norm's Macbeth for about three nights. Noreen Kershaw came down to that. Right. Uh, by now, Manchester was City of Drama in 1994. Noreen, I met Noreen at the Moon Under the Water. She was doing a play at the contact called Lysistrata. She cast me and Lysistrata off the strength of seeing me and Elsie and Norms Macbeth. Right. So now I was working professionally with the contact theatre company. And then I got with an actor's co-op. This was in Stoke, but they were mostly doing corporate stuff. And you had to do days in the office, and I hated that part of it. So I left them, and then I was with another theatre company, and we were doing something at the Buxton Festival in '94, play called The Postcard, which was about the Titanic sinking, pretty much like the story of the Titanic. Um, in '94, we were doing that. I got another actors co-op from Leeds, direct personal management. They come and seen me. They said, "Yeah, you can join us." Yeah. You had to pay then, but you, you had a share in it. So I was with direct personal management. And they started putting me forward and I started getting lines here and a bit here and doing some nice little quirky stuff. What, like on, on the telly? Yeah, I was yeah. getting bits on the telly. And um, I'd done some really good short films, like with a guy called John Humphreys, who was a Birmingham director. I auditioned for him once. And uh, I did a short film with him called Bang. And I also did a short film with him called Everyone. So I, was, I did three things with him one called Diary of a Madman, which was based on the Go-Go book. And I managed to get Marky e. Smith in that because I knew Mark because I played bass with the fall for a couple of gigs. Uh, because, but, whoa, 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 let's just stop right there. How did you end up playing bass in the fall for a few gigs? Right, because when I was going to the Actors Centre and that, I used to do stand-up poetry under the guy's Adolf chip pan. <laughs> I'm not making this up. I, I, I was Adolf chip pan. And I used to do comedy poetry. Right. <clears throat> and I got introduced to Mark and I ended up doing some poetry at fall gigs. And then he found out I could play the bass. So he's always, always sacking people. Mm. So I got a call one day saying, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? And nothing, why? And it was like, do you want to come to Turkey? 
and play bass because Jim's been sacked. So I went, yeah. So we flew out to Istanbul the next day, rehearsed, played the gig the day after and then came home. And then I played bass for him on a show that went out live called Live in the Northwest. In fact, there's a clip of that on uh, YouTube. <laughs> and for the first part in that set, Mark never even got up. He sat in the audience. Did he? Yeah, because like when we got there, he's such a cantankerous bastard sometimes. This, this floor manager was a Scottish guy and uh, he introduced himself and he said, I can't remember his name, he said, I- I'm Joe, whatever. I'm a floor manager, I tell you what to do. So Mark took umbrage at that. So when he got introduced, the host went, Hi, welcome to Live in the Northwest. And now it's our first thing, it's under the counter with the fall. And the camera panned over and we started playing. And Mark sat in the audience and we were looking at him thinking, When's he going to get up? When's he going to get up? And he didn't get up. We'd done the whole song without It's on YouTube. We'd done the whole song without him getting up. And then when it finished, the camera went back over there. The floor manager said there, why, why didn't you get up again? Because you didn't fucking tell me to, did you? I thought you'd tell us what to do. <laughs> so it was like, oh. Because did you hear, and I don't know if this is true, but it sounds very much like something that would happen. On a very late gig, not long ago, just <clears throat> not for, too far before he, he passed away, he, uh, he didn't get up on stage and did the whole gig from the dressing room. Yes. Did you hear about that? Yeah, he did. I did hear about yeah. that, yeah. Uh, that was when he wasn't... He wasn't, he wasn't too well, he was wasn't he? wasn't too well. But, but yeah, when I was having no acting work and was really struggling to, to A, get known and get a CV, I was Adolf Chitpan because it was just... I had the fucking need to do something. I had to channel this, this energy. Um, and that's what I did for a while. I don't, I don't think I was very good. I did some comedy, but I always... It was easier for me to hide behind yeah. poems, like... And a character? Yeah. And did you write all your own stuff? Steve? I wrote all my own stuff. I'm wondering if I can remember one. Shall I do one? Yeah. All right, bear with me. This is the story of Unlucky Joe. His life was cursed from above and below. Nothing in life went right for this bloke, because God in his wisdom made Joe's life a joke. He was born out of wedlock, his conception was worse... He only got through because a Jorex had burst. The maternity nurse walked out in disgrace. She didn't slap his bottom, she punched in his face. They stamped a big reject mark right on his bum. They wanted to try and shove him back in his mum. The ugliest baby that you'll ever see, his mum wanted an abortion when he was three. Life for Joe was just one long battle. He wanted a toy his folks bought him a rattle. They thought that finally his troubles would mend. But the rattle still had a snake on the end. He wanted a pet, his parents thought good. So they bought him this Rottweiler baying for blood. They thought this is good, this is bad for his health. But the dog took one look and just savaged itself. Well, he grew up quick and he grew up keen. And his mum got hard and his dad got mean. I know that sounds familiar to you. Because I ripped that bit off from a boy named Sue. (laughs) All his adulthood was trouble and strife. He looked and he looked and he looked for a wife. He tried every trick to trap off with a mate. He became a contestant. He went on blind dates. Now, you won't believe this bit. This is a killer. The unlucky twat won a night out with Scylla. 
He had a computer date, he gave that a go. They paired him off with Quasimodo. He thought he was destined to spend life alone. So he rang the Samaritans. They hung up the phone. And then he fell in love. This girl blew his mind and she fancied him. Of course, she was blind. She was pretty rough as far as girls go. Even the man from Del Monte said no. This guy swallowed a lozenger, developed a cough. Joined CND, the bomb went off. His bus turned up late, his train got derailed, the fail-safe device on his wall safe failed, his toilet got blocked, his jacket got mocked, a one-night stand, that earned him the pox. The doll lost his file, they stopped all his cash. He bought a new jacket, came out in a rash. His MFI furniture was falling to bits. Mind you, that's pretty normal, because that stuff's shit. Nothing in life ever went Joe's way. All that had happened in only one day. Joe knew that something must be to blame. He figured that maybe that it was his name. So he changed it by deed, Paul. He filled in the form. And lo and behold, Steve Everts was born. (laughs) I'm just going to give a moment for the audience at home. Because I know that they're going to be clapping and thinking... (laughs) Where did this come from? It's still in there, mate. It's brilliant, mate. It's still in there somewhere. How funny that you um, can still remember I all can, that. I'm amazed I can remember that. I'm amazed I can remember that. I really am. I go home and put my keys down. I don't know where to put them. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so how, how, long, how long were you doing, doing the poetry for? Uh, probably a couple of years. Um, but like I say, I, I don't think it was very good. I beg to I, differ, Steve. I think you're very, very no, good. No, I think my, some poems were okay. But it was like the links in it. It's very, very lonely out there. And they have nothing but admiration and respect yeah. for stand-up comedians who were out there on their own. Night after night no after ba- night. Yeah. 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 Travelling all around, and, everywhere. Mate, nothing but pure admiration because it's fully down to you. And I think I found a bit safety netting like I do now. I'm acting. I'm part of a team. You know, all right, somebody's written the words for me. It's somebody's job to make it feel continuity. It's somebody, I'm part of a team that I uphold my part of the bargain. Yeah. And, of course, everybody else does their utmost to do that. But if you're out there on your own and you're writing all your own material, it better be good or, you, you know, you, you've got no safety net. And I think I found that a bit daunting. Um, I was all right, but my heart wasn't 100% in it. It was great because it was a bit creative and it gave me the applause and I was addicted to the applause and the attention. And it facilitated your creativity for that time. It did, it did. It was like, I need to do something, I need to do something, you know. And also, back then, it, there was quite a few <coughs> bands who would have po- poem, yeah. uh, po- po- poets, poets get yeah. the word out, as their opening act instead Ooh. of a support act, or they might have a, a, a guy doing the poetry and then the support act and then the yeah, main gig, so yeah. it wasn't unheard of. Yeah, so that led to me doing a bit with The Fall and uh, and like I say, I was with direct personal management then and and getting little bits of work and, and it was all right. Did you make a conscious decision to stop being the chip pan? Yeah, I did, I did. Um, like I say, I don't think my heart was... Well, I know my heart wasn't 100% in it. I did enjoy it, but I knew I wasn't properly cut out for it. Yeah. It, it, was just, it was the pattern between poems. If I felt I was losing the room, I could jump to a poem and it had a pattern to it and a rhythm to it and I rehearsed it in my own head and I knew it 
and I knew kind of where laughs were coming and where they weren't and and kind of the rhythm to it. Um, so that, that to me, was the safety net. And some of my patter was all right. But, I was going to um, say, because you, you're never too <laughs> lost for some words. No, it was just a different frame of mind. It, yeah. was, it was a bit daunting to say, I'm going out there, it's my job to make. It was all right if you had a home crowd and you knew someone, but if, if it was like you didn't know anybody there, it was a very lonely place to be. Yeah, you know? I can imagine. And like I say, I have nothing but admiration for these people. So, so what next? Well, I was with direct personal management and... Again, that was going a lot towards the corporate thing. There was a lot of corporate video based. Um, and you had to go in and do certain days of the week in the office. And I hated that. Yeah. I really, that's not what I got in it for. And Daphne was in charge of it. Daphne Franks, bless her. She fought my corner. I, I, that's, I stopped going to the meetings. You had once a meeting once a month. And it was bloody tedious. It was like... Minutes of the meeting, right, you know, someone's not been putting the pens back in the drawer. And, like, it's been noted and, like, somebody's not, like, washed the cup up after they've made a cup of tea. It's like, for fuck's sake, I'm not going to act in for this. Yeah. And then they'd pass the motion and say, right, so put the pens back, wash your cup, and, right, we'll see you next month. And then you had to do, like, a few days in the office so to drive over to Leeds and do that. Again, my heart wasn't in that. Sure. Um, but it's funny how, how things happen because then I'd done, I was working with a mate and he was an electrician, so I was labouring for him because I couldn't live on what I was doing. No, of course not. Um, I went for this audition. My mate was great. I went for this audition in Manchester for a, a series called Buried, which was a prison drama, um, I remember it well. Connor McIntyre was in that. Smug Roberts was in that. There's a few faces in that. Anyway, I went for this part. The director was a Scottish geezer called Kenny, Kenny Lennon. And I went and I turned up with my work clothes on. I was like covered in shit because my mate, we'd been doing a job. We'd been in some house. My mate drove me there. I kind of ran in, done the audition, caked in shit. <coughs> I remember the actor Dean Andrews was there. Because he said to me later, he was in, he was in uh, Buried. He said to me, mate, you made me fucking laugh when you turned up. Because he didn't know me then, and I didn't know him. He said, you walked in, and we thought, what the fucking hell is this? <laughs> what is this guy thinking? What is he fucking thinking? And he's right, Dean. I, I should have gone like... But he was for the prisoner, and I was working. Yeah. I didn't have time to get changed. And I went in, and, and I saw Kenny, and then did my best, and I got the job. Did you? I got the job. I was Pally in it, one of the prisoners. Um, Francis McGee was in it as well. And Lenny James. Yeah, and Lenny yeah. James, yeah. Well, I got the job and it was lovely, but then Kenny Glennon then done a film called Summer with Robert Carlyle, and he asked me to go through the read-through. The, the script had just been okay and green-lit by 16 films, and Kenny asked me to come to the read-through just to... Um, Fill in the parts. Like, read other... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I only read for one particular part. And I can't remember, Kenny just sat there with his eyes shut, listening to everyone around the table, picturing it in his mind. He was a great bloke, Kenny. And, uh, and then he was like, right, thank you. And I went home and then Kenny said to me, I want you to do it. 
I was like, oh, all right, yeah. And he said, Robert Carlyle's the other person there. I was like, what? So anyway, Kenny fucking... Next thing, I'm in this film, 16 films, with Robert Carlyle. And we're best mates in it. And it was quite... It was an independent film with 16 uh, films. But it, it was... Uh, it was quite. It was quite popular. It was very. It's a very good film. Yeah. Very powerful film. I've seen it. I remember it. Have you seen yeah, it? Yeah. 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 And uh, I got on great with Bobby, and you know that. I think that helped me a bit. Um, but then, as you know, I got I got loads of jobs and done loads of like quirky little things, and the Ken Loach one was. Is that what you? Were, is that what you asked me? Well, that's where we were. That's where we'd stopped last time, but. I, I don't think we've got into the thick of it about like auditioning for Ken Loach and how that how it came about. And... Mm, well, I was with direct personal management then. Still, yeah, still there. Yeah, and it was all right because I'd stopped going in and doing my days in the office. I'd stopped going to the meetings, and it was always brought up. Why is he like, you know, minutes of the meeting? He's supposed to be here. He's supposed to do his there. And Daphne, bless her, fought my corner. She just fought my car and said, look, he, he gets work. He, 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 we're getting a percentage of what he does. He's getting parts that no one else is here he's getting. All right, he's not the best. And she fought my car until it was kind of an unwritten rule that I didn't go to the meetings. Yeah. I had my kids at the weekend there and I split up with their mum. <coughs> um, so I kind of got away with that. So, and I was getting some... Pretty decent work. But then the brief came in that Ken Loach was making a film. He was looking for people aged between 40 and 50 in Northern. That was the brief. That was it. And I went to one. I got nine recalls for that. Nine? Nine. Because Ken doesn't give anything away. And that's all the brief was. Northern, male, 40 to 50. I fitted the brief. So I went, and it was like a bit of improvisation. So there'd be a few of you there, and he'd say something like, oh, okay, yeah, um, you go into a football match, uh, you drive the car, your car's rubbish, uh, the lads don't want to use you. You just give you just sort of a little everyday situation at you. <coughs> so you do a bit of improv, and it was like, right, thank you, see ya. And then you'd go. Yeah. And then that was it. And then two weeks later... Daphne would ring me and say, do you want to see you again? Oh, great, great. So you'd go, and it'd be a more improvisation. And in the middle of a scene, he'd throw you, he'd throw whoever was with you, he'd get them aside and whisper something, and he'd throw you a curved ball in the middle of it yeah. just to switch it around and see if you... I knew what he was doing now, but he was always trying to wrong-foot you to see if you could stay in character and how you dealt with it. And anyway, it was like, right, thank you, Bye. Two weeks had passed. Oh, that's it. Ken Loach wants to see you again. Oh, this is good. But each time, the audition process got more and more in-depth until, like, I was there maybe an hour and a half doing improv and improv. It's quite intense. Yeah, very, very intense, yeah. And then improv with, uh, this is your wife, you know, you're, um, blah, 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 you're splitting up or, you know, this thing's... You're telling your wife you want to leave her. And you'd do this and you'd get really intense and then your wife would say, because he had briefed her before, she'd turn around and say, well, I'm pregnant now. You know, and they'd just go the other way. And it was fucking great. I loved it. And every time it was like, 
thank you, bye. And you'd go and go, I wonder how I did, I wonder how I did. And you'd go home, two weeks, like, Ken Loach wants to see you again. And then I got nine recalls for that, if I'm not mistaken. By about the seventh, I was assured that was going to be in the film. Oh, they but said that But I didn't know you. what part. Right. They said, there's a place for you, but we're not sure yet. Because I could have been one of seven people in that film. Of course. So I was over the moon just to be working with Ken Loach and to be in his film. Of course. I didn't really know anything about the film. And then, um, again, more improv. And uh, I was working with my mate one day. Again, we were in the van. And she rang me and said, good morning, Eric. I was like, what? She went, you've got the part. I was like, what? She said, you, you've got the lead part in Ken Loach's film. I was like, are you, are you sure about this? Do you, want, do you want to just ring and clarify it before I start fucking celebrating here? <laughs> You've got the part in Ken Loach's film. It's like, what? And then the fucking real work began. Then it was like, wow, this is great. But he wouldn't let you have a script. You don't see the story. You're not allowed to. Right. He shoots in sequence. Yeah. And you don't know how the film's going to end. Now, it gets to the stage now where you're doing loads of improv about your character. I know my name's Eric. I know I'm a Man United fan. Uh, I know I can't. I've got two stepladds. This is pre-shooting. This is pre-shooting. Right. And now we're in the house. This is pre-shooting with the lads, Jed and Stefan, playing my stepsons. They even got an actress in to play the first wife, their mum who's not in the film, uh, to improv in the house with her. Yeah. We improved about the kids being at school and getting bollocked at school. And she was there and she had a drink problem. So I'd done all this great improv with the lads and this actress, I wish I could remember her name, who's the first wife. But then she leaves Eric with the two kids. But this was all before the camera had even rolled. And now we knew um, that uh, Lily, um, Steph was going to be Lily in it, my wife in it. So I was doing loads of improv with her. Yeah. And the house, he gave me the car, the, the hero car in it. He said, this is your character's car. Off you go with it, drive it. Um, so it was like fantastic and it was really, really exciting. And it was a six-week shoot and we didn't know how it was going to end up. And, and they'd shoot, on day one, you're doing scene one. In fact, the first day um, was a Sunday, the opening sequence on it, where we're driving the car around the roundabout. In the script, he drives it round the wrong way and the police seal it off. But I, well, it wasn't my fault, it was a stunt driver. Smashed head on into my car. No. Yeah, I had Ken in the back of it, um, Carl, the focus puller, and Barry, the cameraman. They were in the back seat for the shot. We'd done loads of shots, long shots, medium shots, but when the camera was actually in the car, and I remember driving, and the stunt driver, they said to me, don't you avoid us, we'll avoid you. Yeah. You're just going round. And that's what I did, and the first <coughs> time, first circuit, this car came incredibly close, and I remember thinking, Jesus, that was fucking close. Yeah. The next circuit round, bang, head-on collision. We all My right? first day's we filming. Yeah, it was yeah. all right. I was mortified. Mm. <laughs> it was like, 
<coughs> my first day filming, I've just got a job, a dream job, and I've fucked up the car. But it wasn't my fault. So, Ken, cool as a cucumber. Right, get the car assessed. Uh, everybody go home. So the next day was the flashback scene when I'm younger and I've got no lines, but he had me and Steph there with earpieces in at the dance where we met and our younger actors playing us. Yeah. We watched it and it was invaluable because, you know, another director might have said, well, we don't need you, it's the flashback. But he went, no, I want you there because this is your memory. Yeah. And it was great because when you got... When you were doing the film, you were allowed to improvise. You could see things that you could relate to. You know, the way they first held hands or... <clears throat> so... And that's invaluable for you for creating that character. Well, it was great. How incredible is that? It was great as well because there was a scene where, when he got married, the dad... Um, oh, God, I wish I could remember it. Terrible at names. Again, it was the younger characters... And he was berating my younger, my younger self. And he had him by the back of his neck like that, saying, hey, you've got responsibilities now, lad, you know, it's the fun. And I and watched it. We had earpieces in listening to the lines. Yeah. And that was so invaluable because later on, when I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Lily, trying to rekindle things, they show that flashback. But I was, like, improvising some of the dialogue and I was saying, and my daddy just hold me by the neck and... Rattle me about like a fucking game show host with a contestant. But that wasn't written down. But I saw that. Yeah. So, and he didn't always tell you what was going to happen in a scene. For instance, I didn't know Eric Cantona was going to be in the film. I had no idea. Really? I had no idea. And I knew my character was a mad Cantona film. I mean, as we were shooting in sequence and you don't know... The scenes, you're not, you're not having them yet. You're not having them fucking scenes. Does he, does he give you, <coughs> would he give you like, that's what we're going to be doing today, as in there's your That's what we're going to do tomorrow, learn that. Right, okay, so it would, the day before. Maybe the day before. Or he'd go like this at one point, uh, learn this monologue in your own time. So you go away and you don't know where it fits yet. Yeah. And he manipulated you beautifully because, first of all, I didn't know Eric Cantona was going to be in the film. And we shot this scene where... I'm in my room, I'm having a joint, I've nicked the kid's stash from under the floorboard. I'm talking to the poster, collar up, all that Cantona thing, and saying, you know, uh, my shrink asked me if I've ever done something, she said, something like that. And it cut, do it again, cut, do it again, cut, do it. Seven takes, I'm thinking, what am I doing wrong? And then he went, let you forget, uh, we need to tweak the lights, go and have a cigarette outside. So I went, by the way, all the crew have got earpieces in, you never do anything over the walkie-talkie. No call sheets, you don't get a call sheet. Really? You're not allowed to see a call sheet. Anyway, I'm outside with someone with me, and I'm having a cig, and then you go, yeah, right, okay, we're ready for you now. So I go back up into the room, they put some black flats up, same thing, and he says, okay, yeah, yes, yes, and um, we'll do one more. One more. Never says action. In your own time. So anyway, fucking I'll do it again, turn the colour up. My shrink asked me, Well, have you? Says this voice behind me. And I noticed some Belgian lads on the crew. I'm thinking, fucking hell. <laughs> He's got someone to do. Well, have you? Yeah. And there's this voice. And I turn round. 
Eric Cantona stood like four feet away from me, lit beautifully. And I'm like... Ah, like a god. What? <laughs> it was, it was, it was incredible. I can feel it now. I can remember feeling... It was like a fucking acid trip condensed. I couldn't believe it. it, it what? What's going on? And it was like... Fucking hell. I, I said to Daph, like, is it really you? And he went, yeah, we... Oh, no, so oh, says, is that what you said? You yeah, said- yeah. I said, fucking hell, is it really you? So, anyway... I said, say something in French then. <laughs> anyway, je suis cantonna. It's like, fuck. So it's like, cut. Right, now it's lunch. <laughs> it's like, ah, ah, what happened there? <laughs> My fucking God. And I was just like, stood there and all the fucking crew were laughing. Oh, going, my God. Mate, it's, we've been keeping it secret. Oh, so they, they, all they, they all knew. They fucking knew. They all knew. They all knew. The crew all knew. That's why they've all got hippies. What I didn't know was, while I was doing that scene, they'd got Cantona in. While you were having a fag outside? They'd got him in already. Had him stashed upstairs oh, in the room. They sent me out and they got him got in him that in. room. Got him hidden. Lit him. And I said, right, we're ready for you now. Oh, my God. And uh, next thing, I'm having lunch, sat next to Cantona. And it's like, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> Unbelievable. And this is how he manipulates you. He gave me this monologue to learn. The one that he said in your own time? Yeah, yeah. learn it. Anyway, I learned it. And I had it in my head and in my head and in my head and I knew it and I knew it and I winged around it and all that. And then I think it was after lunch, we came back to shoot again with Cantona. And we picked up from that moment and he says something about you need to confront your demons from the past. And uh, I say, can't. Anyway, and he, he, he was in there. No, there was a trunk in the room with some on. And he just shoved the stuff off it. And he owned it with your memories. He'll deal with them. And I went through and there was a picture of the younger actors playing me and Lily. Yeah. At the dance where we met. And that was the monologue. Right. right, and I picked that up, and I just started saying the monologue. I just went into it because it's the most natural thing in the world. Because that was like one of the things on the top of the chest when he opens it, and I picked. And I said, I remember the first time I set eyes on Lily Divine, and that's the thing we'd already seen at the dance contest when we met. So that was in me. The monologue was in me, Ed, and that that was where the monologue was in the script. Yeah. When you get the script at the end of it, on the last day of filming, that's when you get your scripts. And there's lines in it that weren't in it and there's improv that wasn't in it. Uh, that's when, that's where that monologue was. And that's how beautifully it manipulates you because you know the character so much and it just feels like the most natural thing in the world to see yeah. that photo and go into that. Yeah. And then... We were, we were filming a little family meal in it, in the living room with the two lads and Lily and me and the baby, Lucy Joe. Um, and there's a scene then when Eric, my character, goes in the kitchen. He's, he's got stuff on his mind with the kids and that, that we're involved with gangs. And he goes in and Lily comes behind him and it's a lovely scene. You're all right, Eric, you know. 
you can always talk to me. I'm always there. Oh, it's nothing, Lily. It's just the lads. Would you like a coffee? And it's a lovely, tender scene between Eric and Lily. You can see that they still got feelings, especially him for her. And he offers her coffee, and it was cut. Uh, do it again. Would you like a coffee? Uh, cut. Do it again. Uh, and it always ended on, would you like a coffee? Again, shot it about seven times. Uh, I thought, oh, I must have got it by now. But he does this to lull you into this false sense of security because it was a lovely, tender scene between them two people. And we did it. Would you like a coffee? And then there was all this almighty fucking bang! And I was like, whoa, what's that? And the front door got fucking knocked off its hinges by armed police. And these weren't extras dressed as police. This was a real armed police squad. And they fucking bulldozed into that house. And I just looked down a corridor and I just seen officers coming at me with fucking guns. Someone in the living room. And it was like, on the floor, get on the fucking floor. I was like, whoa, what the fuck? No, no. And, and Steph, Lily, bless her, started fucking crying. And, and I'm on the fucking floor. And I've got this armed cop pointing a fucking gun at me head. And, and he, he manhandled me. He cuffed me. And he fucking dragged me up. And there's an officer. And I could see the lads. And they, Lucy Joe was crying. And I get thrown down a corridor to a catchment officer. He's at the front door. The front door's on the floor. That's been taken off with the universal key. And I go outside... And I'm handcuffed and I'm being led out by cops, proper being shouting and disorientating you. And this fucking road's taped off and there's police cars outside. And I get bundled to this police car and thrown in this police car by the scruff of my neck. And I'm in this... And then I can see Steph coming out, Lily, and she's crying her eyes out. And, and, and Lucy Joe <sighs> crying. It was shocking. And the two lads looking... And we all got put in uh, police cars... Steph got in mine, crying her eyes out, and they drove us around the block and come back and got out and went, is everyone okay? Oh, my God. And I was like, if you look back at that film and you see when them police are manhandling me out of that kitchen, you look at my face because it was scary and it was real and there was no rehearsal and they were the real armed police, not extras dressed as bobbies. Yeah. And you can only do that once. You can only do that once. And then it was like, oh, my God. And Ken went, is everybody OK? And he went, I went, can you say something? I know now why you give us a full medical before we started shooting. <laughs> and he went, everyone go home for the day. And <laughs> oh, my God. Because you... You must have been... Mate, it was... I mean, you say you were um, disorientated, but, my God, your emotions must have been all over the shop after that. Certainly was. There's no way you could carry on doing anything else after that. No, no. And I remember getting being driven home by Jim, the driver, and just, just being sat next to him in the passenger seat, just going, I don't believe that. I don't believe what's just happened. I can't believe that. And he was doing it all the time to me. I think I'm one of the... I know he does it to, to uh, mostly all his actors in all his films, uh, but I believe I'm one of the most... I called it being loached. <laughs> Traumatised. Yeah. <laughs> I believe, like, <clears throat> that somebody said to me, this is the most he's ever done. 
and another quick one on that was we had nothing to do on it. He went, oh, oh, just go back in your son's room and, and get some more weed from under the floorboard. And then under the floorboard is a Tupperware tin with some weed in it. So we, we frame that shot up. Frame it up. Is that all right, Ken? Yeah. What about that there? Yeah, right. Okay, let's do it. Start from your room. So I start. I creep along. The camera's in the room, stepson's room. I peep behind, stepson's not in. Great. I'll just help myself to a bit of weed. I move the floorboard. The Tupperware tin's not there now. There's a purple cloth there. I pick it up. I open it. There's a gun. I found a fucking gun now. No. I found a gun. So now it's like, what do I do? What do I do? And how do I put it back? My stepson's got it then. I'll be prints on it. And I left the room with it. And that was the right thing to do. Yeah. Because the next thing is, I'm upstairs with the other son, Stefan, going, What's, what did you know about this gun? So again, he loads you into this false sense of security. Let's frame it up. Yeah, there's the weed. There's the thing. So now you're thinking, oh, I'll just go in now and the weed's there. And it's not. And it's moments like that that he's catching. Yeah. Those moments when you're thrown... <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Did you feel safe in that environment? Because you'd never worked like this before. No, I, I, I didn't feel safe, and that's what I loved about it. Yeah. Uh, and I knew, well, I didn't know what was going to happen. And just when I thought I had it sussed, that's when the film took a really dark swing with the finding of the gun. Yeah. Um, and every time Cantona appeared, he always appeared when I didn't expect it. He kept doing that to me. Now, what's what I'm doing now? Just wash some pots in, in the kitchen. I wash pots. I turn around, fuck me, you, stop, you sat there again. You stop doing that, you know. <laughs> and uh, you must throw some balls from your balls. No, no. All that was... I mean, what... Did you think... I mean, what a magical time oh, for you it was, doing that. It was unbelievable. I was absolutely... In my element. We're cherishing every moment. Every single moment of it. And I found a call sheet. I was let to see one on the last day. And it did have on it, in large capital letters, do not leave any scripts or call sheets or schedules lying around where the cast might find them or see them. And you, you, never, you never saw the call sheet. And, and it was never like, here's your call sheet for tomorrow. Yeah. No, no, no. Alien to us. Yeah. Isn't it? You go up to the second, where's my call sheet? Yeah, then it's what time the sun comes up, what time you're getting picked up, what time you're in makeup, what time you're in wardrobe, who's in the scenes, there's your scene numbers, there's the synopsis of the scene, followed by, no, fucking none of that. <laughs> Did it feel odd? After you finished that, going on to work on something that oh, was much more regimented. It spoiled me because, just because of the sequence and the unfolding of it as it happened. I knew everything about my character's past. I knew everything about his present. I knew nothing about his future. And it was an amazing way of working. And I understand budget requirements and that. I mean, you know... It, in anything normal, it's like, say, you're using a house, and in scene one, you buy the house. And in scene 76, um, there's a murder in the house. You're going to shoot that, and then you're going to shoot scene 76. Ken wouldn't do that. He'd come back to the house, even though the line manager might be saying, look, it's cheaper to just... We do the two shots that day, and then yeah. we can get rid of the house. We don't need to rent it anymore. 
Ken wouldn't do that. And plus, he was shooting on 35 milli. Right. And still doing razor blade cuts for it. You know. It was incredible. It was a great experience for me. And, of course, it opened a lot of doors. And the next thing, it was like, go and get a tuxedo, going to Cannes Film Festival. It's like, what? Are you having a laugh? <laughs> and I'm at this fucking place called Swarbricks, asking for a tuxedo, can I rent a tuxedo? And all the lads are coming, a load of us went. Uh, Justin Morehouse, Mug, John Enshaw. You know, it was fantastic. Eric, Cantona. We're walking down the... The um, red carpet, uh, I forget the name of it now, the, the main place of the thing in Cannes, with Eric singing, who are Cantona, all of us. It's just so magical. Those photos are, anybody, anybody listening can go and find those photos. They're, they're all there, aren't they? It I've seen magical. some on the internet. Yeah. And then I got nominated for um, the Best Actor at the European Film Awards. And it, it was like, what, are you having a laugh? Are you sure? Don't have me going over there and this is a piss take. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit like when you got the call for the job. <laughs> yeah, I know. I never knew what was real or fake anymore. Or it was just, was someone just trying to get a reaction? Is he a hidden camera? Is Ken still filming this? Does he just want a reaction? Um, so, yeah, it opened a lot of doors for me, touch wood. And uh, it, was, it was magical. I'll never forget it. And if it no. all went away tomorrow and you never acted again, Steve. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter to me because the, the irony is it was kind of one of the first times that I was uh, in a major film, number one in the cast, and I never saw it. Because I never... You <laughs> 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 never had a cop sheet. <laughs> I can't even say, look, that was number one on the cast list once. <laughs> I haven't got any. That's kind of funny, that, isn't it? It's like, you know, when I'm an old bastard, like, you know, one day I'll be going, yeah, I've done a film once. You know, when everything's fucking been blown up and there's only Keith Richards and cockroaches left and me. And we're going, I did a film and I was number one in the cast. And so we're going, you got a call sheet to prove it. No, well, it didn't fucking happen, you stupid old bastard. Steve, I can't tell you how brilliant it's been, you coming back. It was oh, worth everything. Oh, mate, it's everything. been a pleasure. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely, yeah. I've been looking forward to it, mate. It's so lovely yeah. talking to you, mate. I, I really appreciate it. Has time it. flown again? It has, hasn't it? It always flies, mate. Oh, <sighs> yeah. Oh, well. No, mate. It was perfect. Superb. Mate, I'm so pleased you're, you. you're well and you're happy and, and you're not smoking. Looking forward to it, mate. Cheers, mate. And another episode is done. What an episode. What a part two. Did you enjoy it? Did you really? I mean, what tales, what stories. And the great thing is with Steve, he is so... He's, he's, he's him. There's no airs and the graces. There's no, he's not putting on an act. Uh, he's so honest and he's great company to be around. I wouldn't have gone back and done a part two if he wasn't great company, to be honest. And that, but that's why I feel I'm very, very lucky. Someone was asking me the other day about the guests and they went, oh God, you know loads of people. I went, to be honest, the majority of people that come on here, I don't know. I don't know, we've made a connection, but we, maybe we haven't met. 
Like someone said the other day about Eileen Walsh's episode. They said, so how long have you and Eileen Walsh been mates? I didn't... I said, well, I met her, like, five minutes before I hit record. So, that, that to be honest, to me, that is the biggest compliment you can pay. That it's a, a very natural conversation. Because that's, oh, that's all I want. That's all I want. No one's coming on talking about the films or the telly programme or the books. They're not selling anything. They're just sharing. They're just having a conversation. They're just talking, which maybe we don't do enough, you know. Anyway, look. Sorry, I went off on one. It's grand. Yeah, a massive thank you to Steve. A massive thank you. I didn't have anywhere to record in Manchester, and the lovely J.B. Barrington, if you haven't heard his episode, do go back and listen. It's an absolute banger. I texted him. I said, do you know anywhere in Manchester? He said, my mate runs the old Nags Head pub in the middle of Manchester. It's a cracking old-school boozer. And we got fitted up with a function room upstairs to record with Steve. So a massive shout-out to the old Nags Head. If you're in Manchester, do pop in for a drink. It's a great, great place. So, two more things, and then you can go, all right? So, I said I was going to be cutting down on live shows this year, which we are, but when invitations come through, and they're so prestigious, you kind of got to follow it up. So, we've got two. One I can tell you about, one I can't for another few weeks. So, number one, we have been invited back to Kendall Calling Festival at Lowther Deer Park, which, if you've been, it's a beautiful setting. It's so gorgeous. It's a lovely festival. It's big enough for a few days, but it's small enough that you're not going to get lost. And there's great bands, there's great comedy, and now there's a very lovely podcast going to be there, like last year. We had Andy Ellis on last year to a massive crowd. Tim Peake's Diner was rammed. It was a massive conversation. And, yeah, it was a beautiful thing. And I'm so chuffed that we've been invited back. So myself and producer Griff will be there at the end of Kendall Calling on the Saturday. Um, so if you've got your tickets, we'll see you there. If you haven't, go to Kendall Calling website. Uh, I'm very excited. Some fantastic, fantastic bands. I'm still trying to think of a, a guest. I want to get a musical guest. And I wasn't going to say this, but I will. I'm going to try and get Sir Tom Jones to come on the podcast. I think it would be a riveting listen and a great conversation. Yeah? Should we try? I think so. I was going to tell you a big story about me going to a Tom Jones concert in Blackpool Opera House then, but it goes on too long. I'll tell you another time. One more last thing. I want to give a, poc 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 I want to give a podcast recommendation out. As I said, you know, there's loads of podcasts out there. We're so pleased that you choose us every week and you're so loyal. Um, but past Two Shot Podcast guests, Thomas Turgus and Andy Ellis, have started a podcast. It's called Overrated Everything. And basically the premise is they pick a guest and the guest comes on with something that they think is completely overrated. And they have a bit of a debate about it and they talk about all sorts of other things. It's really lovely, it's honest, it's a nice ramble thing. You, th you feel like 
you're sort of earwigging with mates at a pub or you're in a conversation with mates at the pub. It's great. They're fantastic hosts. Their guests are amazing. John McClaw's been on there. Who else been on there? It's, oh, I can't think. They've had a fair few, but I've just listened to the last one of Series 1 now with somebody I didn't know at all, a boxer from Doncaster called David Allen. And I say this now, that is their best episode that they've done, and they've been really good. That is brilliant. You think it starts off as one thing, then all of a sudden it takes a massive handbrake turn and it becomes something else. Get your ears around it. Go, start with that one first. It's absolutely brilliant. So it's overrated everything. You can follow them on all the social medias, and it's an episode with the boxer David Allen. It's nothing about boxing, don't worry. It's it's about a person, and you'll love it. Right, I'm going to let you go. Next week is episode 75. And if I'm thinking right, yeah, I know who it is. And I'm going to tell you on Sunday on Twitter. I'll see you there. Remember, do us a favour, yeah? Give us a like. Five stars would be nice. If you don't want to give five stars, you don't have to. Write us a little review if you want. That'd be fantastic. But the most important thing is go tell a few friends about the Two Shot Podcast. We'd appreciate it. Okay, until next week. I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Take care. Wrap up warm. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers.